The reading of God's word this morning begins in Deuteronomy chapter 30, beginning in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. So it shall be when all of these things have come upon you the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind in all nations where Yahweh your God has banished you. And you return to Yahweh your God and obey him with all your heart and soul according to all that I command you today, you and your sons. Then Yahweh your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you and will gather you again from all the peoples where Yahweh your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are at the ends of the earth, from there Yahweh your God will gather you, and from there he will bring you back. And Yahweh your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it. And he will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. Moreover, Yahweh your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul, in order that you may live. And Yahweh your God will inflict all these curses on your enemies and all those who hate you, who persecuted you. And you shall again obey Yahweh and observe all his commandments which I command you today. Then Yahweh your God will prosper you abundantly in all the work of your hand, in the offspring of your body, and in the offspring of your cattle, and in the produce of your ground. For Yahweh will again rejoice over you for good, just as he rejoiced over your fathers." If you obey Yahweh your God to keep his commandments and his statutes, which are written in this book of the law, if you turn to Yahweh your God with all your heart and soul. For this commandment which I command you today is not too difficult for you, nor is it out of reach. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will go up to heaven for us to get it and make, it, uh, make us to hear it, that we may observe it. Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will cross the sea for us to get it for us and make us hear it, that we may observe it. But the word is very near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that you may observe it. See, I have set before you today life and prosperity, death and adversity, in that I command you today to love Yahweh your God, to walk in his ways and to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments, that you may live and multiply, and that Yahweh your God may bless you in the land where you are entering to possess it. But if your heart turns away and you will not obey, but are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not prolong your days in the land where you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess it. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. So choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants, by loving Yahweh your God, by obeying his voice, and by holding fast to him. For this is your life and the length of your days, that you may live in the land which Yahweh swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give them. We'll turn now to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 7. Beginning in verse 1. And the Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered together around him when they had come from Jerusalem. And had seen that some of his disciples were eating their bread with impure hands, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the traditions of the elders. And when they came from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. And there are many other things which they have received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. 
And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat their bread with impure hands? And he said to them, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, The people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Neglecting the commandments of God, you hold to the tradition of men. He was also saying to them, You nicely set aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or mother, anything of mine you might have been helped by is Corban, that is to say, given to God, you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother, thus invalidating the word of God by your tradition, which you have handed down, and you do many things such as that. Please now, if you would, turn to the back of your bulletin. We'll read together as a congregation, Psalm 16. Psalm 16. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. morning again. I can't remember whether I started last time out of 1 Corinthians 2 or not, but if so, I want to read it again. Paul says this, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away, but we speak God's wisdom in a mystery that which was hidden, which God predestined before the ages to our glory. The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age had understood, for if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen, and ear has not heard, and which have not entered into the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him." We'll cover a little more of that passage in the coming weeks. 
But as we attempt to move forward, I have a little bit of cleanup from last week's sermon to do. I didn't finish all that I wanted to say. And I want to remind you then, out of verses 6 and 7 of Colossians chapter 2, I made three, three points, three observations, which I hope will help carry us through our interpretation of the rest of the chapter. The first of those observations is related then to Paul's epistle, what we just read out of 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and that is the purpose for which God made us. God made us from the very beginning, from Genesis 1, for this purpose of sharing in his glory. Now, don't misunderstand me, that glory cannot come apart from fellowship and communion with God. It is a glory in which we possess only when we have a share with him and are indwelt by him. But that's part of Paul's foundation for what he wants us to, to know. So you can see that all the way back from chapter 1, verse 26, that a mystery has been revealed. This is Paul's purpose to uncover this mystery, which has now been revealed in Christ, which was hidden from past ages and generations, but now has been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known the riches of this mystery, the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So that first point, then, is that God made us from the beginning for this purpose of glory. Remember Psalm 84, we just read in our call to worship the Lord, Yahweh gives graciously. He gives grace and glory to mankind. He's building us up, maturing us to this fulfillment. And we recall then Psalm 8, the picture of what God is doing in man first in Christ and then in us. And if we don't understand that, we will not understand where we're going and we will not be able to interpret and apply God's word correctly. God is bringing us into this glory. And now the beginning, the conception of that glory is uncovered in Christ Jesus, the anointed one. So all the way from Genesis 1, God made man and he made him by breathing into the dust of the ground with his spirit so that man is nothing apart from the indwelling spirit of God. We have no ability to, no, no authority, no glory apart from that spirit. And you can see it then as you, as you move through the pages of scripture when man disobeys and God brings and closes the chapter on the first world made out of water and he covers it with water. The, uh, Moses records for us that all in whose nostrils was the breath of life, the spirit of life, they were extinguished because the spirit departed from them. And so from the beginning then we have this, this purpose that God would dwell with us and in that indwelling we will be made who we are supposed to be. And every time you see God departing in the Old Testament, you see the protest of his righteous ones. When Moses prays, when God says, I won't go up with you, his prayer is, don't, don't, don't depart from us. If, if you're not going with us, we, we can go nowhere. And when the, the Ark of the Covenant leaves, remember the, the name is Ichabod, the glory has departed, God has departed the land of Israel, and so hope at least appears to be lost. So that's the first point. Second point out of verse 6 is that the foundation of our walk, the command which Paul is calling us to, is based on this good confession that Jesus, the one whose name means Yahweh saves, is both Christ, the anointed one, and Yahweh. 
And this, this is the unveiling of the mystery, that the anointed one who fulfills every office that we've been waiting for, the purpose of man in priest, king, and prophet is here. He is the anointed one. He is the true high priest, as we find out in the book of Hebrews. He is the fulfilled king who, under whom all of creation bows in obedience. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the prophet who has a seat at God's in God's throne room, at his table, who counsels God the Father himself because he, in fact, is the image of God, as we learned out of chapter 1. So that's the second point. We confess that. We believe that is the foundation of everything else we do. As Christians, we must confess this truth that Jesus is Christ and Lord, both. And our entire existence flows out of that truth. And then the third, the third observation that we made is that, that this walk is built upon then the four participles of verse 7, having been firmly rooted and now being built in him, established in your faith as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. And if you recall, we saw that those four participles, they're, they're not just present, they walk us through the history of the Old Testament so that the rooting is found in the Abrahamic covenant. We're rooted in Christ. Uh, sorry, we're, we're rooted in, that, in the, the covenant promises there in which God is promising to build a people and a place and to make that, that people then into a blessing for all the nations. So we have the beginnings of this fulfilled promise of all that God is going to do in mankind now formed in the person of Abraham. And then that, that covenant people grow. They are built up in the Mosaic covenant. They turn from 70 people into millions of people and a house is built and then finally established and strengthened in the Davidic covenant. The people grow even more. They're solidified and planted in a land and then in the New Covenant, in Ezekiel and Jeremiah, we see then that that people, that covenant people in God's house now overflows. And so our walk, based and founded upon the truth that Jesus is Christ and Yahweh, well, it moves forward. And, and I, I want to draw this out for you. It, it's progressive in history. So it begins with a rooting and then a building up and establishing and an overflowing. And when you read the Old Testament, you can get lost in these details about how God is bringing his plan to fruition because you see within it embedded the people's continual failure, their sins. But even through that sin, God is at work building up his people and what he intends them to be to the point that in the Old Testament, the giving of the New Covenant comes and God's people now overflow. The house overflows. Even or despite the sin of the people, God uses that to, to cause the boundaries which were there all the way back, back from the, the, the promise. We'll, we'll, we'll get to that here in a, in a bit. Those boundaries are now overcome. And so the picture of God's house in the new covenant is that it is overflowing and our appropriate response then is to overflow with thanksgiving. All of this now in the book of Colossians, in, Paul's, in Paul, all of Paul's letters, is now interpreted and understood because Jesus has come. This covenant foundation from Abraham is, is understood and realized through Jesus. And so what that means is that 
as followers of Christ, as being walking in him, being found in him, we're, we're both rooted in what was and we're moving forward. So we can be neither truly conservatives nor truly progressive. We have both. I don't mean by that the progressive nature of our, our current political agenda, but when we think about who we are as Christians, we have a tendency to look one direction or the other, but we are built up on God's covenant promises, but we're moving forward. We should expect then change and transformation as God moves us forward through history into the fullness of what he made us to be. And that can be uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable for these, these believers. So those three things then form the foundation of how we walk. As you receive Jesus as the anointed one, the Messiah, and Yahweh, one essence in one man, walk in him. Walk in the foundation of who he is. Walk in him as being, as being uh, united, as we find out in other Pauline, Pauline literature, united with him, and we'll see here in the, next, in the upcoming verses. We, we walk even having put on then the person of Christ. All of this... All of this command then is tempered and brought to light as to exactly what Paul wants us to see from a second command in verse 8. And we, we touched on this briefly last week, but this is where we're going to begin today. Paul says in verse 8, and we'll read through the end of the chapter, See to it, so as you, as you walk, having received Christ Jesus as Lord, having been firmly rooted being built up, having been established, being established, and overflowing with thanksgiving, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy, empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been filled, and he is the head over all rule and authority." In him you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands and the removal of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the handwriting of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. And when he had stripped the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Therefore, let no one act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a shadow of what is to come but the body is Christ. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels, taking his stand on what he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, being supplied and held together by joints and ligaments, grows with a growth which is from God. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, all of which refer to things destined to perish in consumption, in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. These are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom 
in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. If you would pray with me. Father, we come to your word, and Lord, we need you to work on us through it. Speak to us through our Savior Jesus, who is the living word of God, who rebukes and exhorts and corrects, who trains and teaches us in righteousness. We pray that you would do that for us, your people, this morning. Encourage us through your word. Lift us up, and Lord, renew us into the body of Christ, the the people that you desire us to be. We pray that you would give us ears to hear this morning. We pray these things in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen. So verse 8, the command. Now, built upon this command, receive Christ Jesus as Lord. So as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in him. And we have this second command in verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. So along the walk, then, there is this warning. See to it that no one takes you captive. Um, that word captive is, uh, the word is synagogi, which is, obviously sounds like synagogue. So th- there, is a, there is a sense to this in which he, he has a word play in mind. He, he's warning them, as Paul warns in each of his epistles, about the danger of looking backwards, the danger of succumbing to the teaching of the synagogue. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception. What, what we're going to do is we're going to look at these, these three means. There's three means through which you can have a love of wisdom or an empty deception. The first can be according to the tradition of men. The second, according to the elementary principles of the world. And the third, of course, which he's calling us to is rather love wisdom, walk according to Christ. And those those two things go together. So, of course, then there is this idea. See to it that no one takes you captive. The The word actually means something a little bit more like lead you as plunder. And I I believe I mentioned this last week. The picture you should have in your mind, the positive picture is the the Israelites leading out the plunder of the land of Egypt. And and this progresses in picture all throughout the Old Testament. But the negative is when they're caught, they're taken as, as the plunder of the nations. And so there is this warning that as you have received Christ, as you're walking into him, make sure that no one takes you as their plunder, you as their captive, so that you're led about in a train behind them as a, as a captive unto the nations, <laughs> leading to not the promises of God, but complete emptiness. And so how do we avoid that? He says that they take you captive, the means by which they arrest you, take you plunder, does not, not now buy weapons, all they can do with the body is kill, but instead through a love of philosophy and an empty deception, or a love of, love of wisdom and empty deception. We discussed already then that that love of wisdom, that's a good thing, but in Paul he speaks about wisdom in two ways. 
Greeks love wisdom, but there's an empty form of wisdom when you strip Christ. Even if, even if you were to say be dedicated to the book of Proverbs, you love the Proverbs. It's filled with wisdom. But when you remove Christ from that wisdom, it's empty and it's deceptive. It will lead you nowhere. It's a form of captivity and bondage. So there is a form of wisdom that leads to no wisdom at all. It's instead nothing but empty lies. So in looking at these three phrases, the first of these, according to the tradition of men. This one is somewhat easy to understand. There is a, a tradition which men can bring to the table, and we're going to look at that out of Mark 7. We might have a temptation, depending on background, depending on our own traditions, um, to look negatively first upon the word tradition, as if it's tradition that is the problem. But in most of the New Testament, the word tradition is positive. It's something that's handed down. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11 that I want you to hold firmly to the traditions which I have given to you. And so there is a competition then of tradition in how we walk in, in looking at wisdom. And there is a tradition which comes from, from God, and there can be a tradition which comes from men. And the, the, the only other place where this phrase tradition of men is used is in Matthew 15 and Mark chapter 7. So if you would turn, with it, turn there with me. And we're going to look at how, how Jesus uses this phrase, because I think Paul is, is picking up on the words of Jesus in his warning. See to it that no one plunders you through empty philosophy, empty deception, according to the tradition of men. So what is the tradition of men? We are kidding ourselves if we believe that we have no traditions. We have all kinds of traditions. The, even within the church, the way that we meet, it's filled with traditions. The fact that you're sitting in nice fluffy chairs is a tradition. You like that tradition. Now, it's a, a way in which we interpret Scripture and, and attempt to obey God. And keep that in mind, then, as we read Jesus' denunciation of the Pharisees. Uh, I'd read this for already, but I, I'm going to walk through it a, a little bit more slowly. The Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered together around him when they had come from Jerusalem. So the, the, the men that had met him are from Jerusalem. They'd seen some of his disciples were eating their bread with impure hands, that is, unwashed. And this, this account picks up uh, almost immediately after the feeding of the 5,000. So 5,000 people ate bread from the hands of Jesus and his disciples. And now, here they are eating bread with unclean hands, and the Pharisees from Jerusalem have come to spy this out. Verse 3, for the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the traditions of the elders. And when they came from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. There are many other things which they have received. That's the same word in our passage, by the way. As you have received Christ Jesus, they received then these traditions from the elders. They received them in order to observe, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and copper pots. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? You should hear then the familiar language from Colossians chapter 2. We are called to walk in a certain way. And the Pharisees from Jerusalem are, are questioning Jesus. Why do your disciples not walk according to the traditions of the elders? This would seem like a very good thing to do. Instead, they eat their bread with unclean hands. 
And Jesus said to them, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. So now Jesus changes the phrase from the tradition of the elders to the tradition of men that we hear in Colossians chapter 2. He was also saying to them, you nicely set aside the commandment of God, verse 9, in order to keep your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or his mother anything of mine, you might have been helped by his corbin that is given to God. You no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother, thus invalidating the word of God by your tradition, which you have handed down, and you do many things like this. So we're going to come to the context in just a minute, but remember the complaint is that they're eating with unclean hands. Jesus' response to their complaint is a quotation out of Isaiah 29, which is a judgment on Jerusalem. Remember, these people have come from Jerusalem, the Pharisees and the scribes, and they're, they're judging Jesus and his disciples for eating with unclean hands. And in Isaiah 29, then, a judgment is cast upon Ariel, the city of Jerusalem. And in the midst of that, God tells them why. And that's the quotation there in verses 6 and 7. Because the people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. And in vain, in emptiness, they worship me, teaching as doctrine the precepts of men. And Jesus gives them this example. He says, what you've done with your tradition is you've set aside the commandment of God. So they're, they're working around the commandment of God, and, and Jesus gives than an example. And the example is rather easy to see. He quotes then out of the fourth commandment, honor your father and mother. He who speaks evil of father and mother, let him be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or mother, anything of mine might have been helped by, that you might have been helped by his Corbin, that is to say, given to God, you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother. So uh, most of you are probably familiar with this passage. What's going on is they have a tradition, then, whereby you can dedicate your money, your stuff, to the Lord. The word korban is the, the offering word. You bring it near to God so that it's made holy. And thereby, you can say, well, I, I, I'm sorry, I can't give it to you because it's already dedicated to God. And Jesus says that this tradition is, is overcoming the commandment of God. God said, honor your father and mother, and when you do this, by, by tradition, when you mark out your money, your stuff, as holy, being brought to the presence of God, and thereby you do not honor your father and mother, this is a tradition of men. That one's relatively easy to see. But what's important about that example is it, it speaks then to the broader context of this passage. The context is they're coming with impure hands, and the tradition they're citing is one in which uh, the elders say you should wash your hands, cleanse yourself before you eat. Well, we can be relatively quick to judge this tradition, but if you think about the source of it, it, it makes sense. You read through the Old Testament and you find that, uh, first of all, the ground is cursed. So the dirt is cursed by God all the way back from Genesis 3. And so wouldn't it make sense then to wash your hands before you consume food, 
before you, you take it into your body because you're marked out as the holy people of God. And, and you see this even exemplified in the person, in, in the priesthood. They're commanded then to, to wash before, to wash their hands and feet before they can enter in and sacrifice. And so we might say that this kind of tradition is a, an application then of God's word in which you're thinking about, all right, all that God says, there's, the dirt is cursed, this is how he takes care of it with the priesthood, we are a nation of priests, and so there should then be an extension of this command to wash your hands, to cleanse yourself before you eat. And in that light, it doesn't sound like such a terrible tradition. And in fact, in one sense, there's nothing wrong with it. As a, as a tradition, and we have many such traditions as this as we go through God's Word and we interpret God's Word for ourselves because it's not a textbook of rules on every subject in life. Instead, we're commanded in wisdom to open up God's Word and to understand how we should live. And so we apply it. And that's what the Pharisees and the scribes are doing. Now, there's a connection in that the purpose of... The purpose behind this tradition is holiness. They want to draw near. And so the, 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 re, the reasoning, the rationale of, out of Exodus 30 or Genesis 3 is that God is holy. Leviticus says, and we ought to be holy too. We're his people. And so in order to draw near, we have to be clean. We have to be holy to be brought into his presence. And so there is then an intensification of holiness. And that's the source of the tradition. Now, what's the problem? Why is Jesus chastising them? Well, there's, there's two things going on here. One, he says, you honor me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. So they, they've deviated from the goal of the law, which is circumcised hearts. So not, not just uh, circumcision, not just clean hands. But you remember Psalm 24 who can enter into the presence of the Lord, or Psalm 15, he who has clean hands and a pure heart. So they focus then on the clean hands, but in so doing, they've created not just another holiness code, but they've created another level of division. So as you read through the New Testament, uh, my kids and I were reading John, John 18 this week. You remember in John 18 that the Jews, uh, there, there's this parenthesis in the Gospel of John in which he remarks to us that that they don't eat with the Romans, with the Praetorium. Well, there's, there's no law against that under the Old Covenant. Instead, it derives out of this, this practice in which if you're eating with a Gentile, they, they don't follow these traditions. And so, therefore, you're contaminated. It's a second-level contamination. And so, in creating this tradition, they create another level of separation. And in so doing, they separate off from themselves Jesus, the Messiah, the very one who's come to rescue them. And that's the irony found in the Gospels. But we see that in the example of Corbin. They've marked something out as holy to the extent that they, they don't even see then the goal of the law in what they're doing. And now they've marked out their hands as holy so that they, they're, no, they're no good for what God is, God's purpose is in them. This is the kind of tradition of men that Paul is talking about. See to it that you are not taken captive, that you're not the plunder of the traditions of men. If you look across the church, there's all kinds of different traditions. 
And some of them are, are rooted in antiquity, so there's old traditions, there's new traditions, and, and generally speaking, if you look across the church, the people of God have schismed themselves based on, on many of those traditions. We divide, not first and foremost based on, on the clear command of God, but on all of our then secondary interpretations of how do we keep this command of God. And so there's many such things, but Paul says, see to it that you're not plundered, that you're not taken captive, because in our walk in which everything is rooted in Christ, the fulfillment of what he's doing in building up this people of God into not, not just a root, not just a tent, not just a building, but an overflowing building that fills up the whole world, and that was his intent from the very beginning, see to it that you're not taken captive by traditions that don't aim at the goal. Now, we can't avoid tradition. And so we have to remember that, and we have to clarify in, in, our, own, in our own body, as we seek to obey the Lord, the things that we do, the, the way that we apply God's Word, there's a certain format to it, and we have to continually check ourselves because what, what may have been fine, a tradition of washing your hands, can then result in, in not receiving the Lord of glory. And so for that, then, is a continual review is needed. We need to be clear. What is our application derived from Scripture? And then what does God say? And make sure, now I, I want to be clear, God is not a pragmatic God in that the ends justify the means, so as long as you're focused on the goal, anything goes. That's, that's not what Paul is saying, but rather where God has spoken, we can speak with confidence. And, and this, this gets down to the root of the, uh, the epistle Paul writes to the Corinthians where we struggle. We struggle with this idea that Paul says on the, on the first hand, you can't judge one another, and then secondly, you must judge one another. Well, how do you decide which is which? And it falls along these lines of the tradition of men and where God has spoken. If we, if we come to the, the, the new covenant, subsumed, consumed in Christ, and we understand Paul to, say, to be saying something like, well, in the Old Testament there was rules, and in the New Testament there's no rules, or it was all earthly and now it's all spiritual, we'll get it all wrong. Because even in the book of Colossians, we're going to see that, that still Paul calls us to holiness. And there's specific attributes of that holiness by which we, we cannot endure, um, endure those who sin in that fashion in our midst. And, and we, we know that with clarity from 1 Corinthians 5 and 6. But we can, we can fall prey to the other side. And that was the temptation of the Colossians where you divide the body of Christ, thereby, thereby becoming captive to the enemy, where God has made no such division. The second phrase, if you turn back to Colossians chapter 2. He says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world. So there's a second phrase there, and if you remember from last week, as we move through here, Paul is giving us, uh, his, his outline is in triads, according to, according to, 
in him, in him, in him, with him, with him, with him. And that's how we can at least see part of the organization of, of these next few verses. But this second according to, according to the elementary principles of the world. So there is another means by which we can fall prey. We, we can be taken captive as we pursue our Savior. And that's according to, then, the, the Greek word is stokean. And if you read around, you'll find that lots of people have, have uh, vague ideas about what this means. Very, very vague. And part of that is how it was used in Greek during the intertestamental period. The Stoics interpreted this word. Uh, it, it, it means, it means an, an order. Uh, and it has then the connotations also of the beginning, the foundation of that order of things. And so if you're one that likes to read people like Aristotle, I'm sure there's all kinds of you know, folks like that in our congregation. He, he pushed forth the, the, the theory of the, the order of the world. There's earth, fire, wind, uh, air as the elements of everything, everything that the world is. I don't think that's quite what he's talking about here. Instead... We'll steal a little bit of the thunder from Galatians, so if you would turn with me to Galatians chapter 4, I get corrected in a few weeks here. But for, for now, there's at least one thing we need to attach to this, this idea of stoicheia. So Galatians chapter 4, and we'll read in verse 1. Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave although he's owner of everything, but he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world, under the stoicheia of the cosmos. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And so here in Galatians, the phrase the stoicheia of the cosmos, the, the elementary principles of the world, at least part of what Paul means by that is the law itself. So there is an order to the way that God made the world. And remember, in Colossians, we've now moved from the past age into a new age. And Paul says that that past age had a certain order of things, a certain arrangement and the new age has a new arrangement that is in Christ. And if you're looking for wisdom in that old arrangement, you're going to end up holding a bag of air. There's nothing. Even though God is the one who made it, God gave the law, and it was good in its time. It was good for its purpose. But if you look back to it, it's nothing now. It's almost equivalent to the tradition of men. So if you would just keep reading in Galatians there. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. However, at that time when you did not know God, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. But now that you have come to, be known, come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? And so the elemental things, 
part of what Paul means is the law, but also he pictures it as an enslavement, not just to the law, but those who presided over the law. And so one of the things that we'll encounter then in Colossians is, remember, he's setting us free. He's triumphing over the rulers and the authorities. And part of what he means by that is the angels presiding over the law. So there is a way to enslave ourselves to those who by nature are no gods. And so Paul's warning back in Colossians, and we'll see it in, in the rest of the chapter, see to it that no one plunders you, that no one takes you captive along your walk founded in Christ through a, a false love of wisdom, an empty wisdom, through nothing but empty lies according to the tradition of men or according to the order of the world. Now, this word stoicheia in a verb form, it usually means something like to walk, interestingly enough. So you walk in a certain order, in an array, and it, it can be used of a military array. So in Acts chapter 17, when, when Paul is, is, is told to go to, to the temple, he, he's walking in order, in stoicheia, to, to bring the... Uh, to bring the men who are fulfilling the Nazarite, Nazarite vow. It's, it's according to the law, but there is a certain order then to, to that walk. Now remember, our context is Paul is commanding us to walk, but we don't walk according to that age, to that order, or we will lose our prize. Remember our, our, our prize. I was reading yesterday Philippians 3 uh, with somebody in... We're looking at what it means to count everything rubbish in view of gaining Christ. So all that was, Paul's heritage, all that he held on to, he says in Philippians chapter 3, I count it as a loss for the, the sake of gaining Christ, and I press onward to the upward prize of the call of God in Christ Jesus. He's lifting us up to be part of the body of Christ who has been resurrected to the right hand of God to reign and rule over all things. We see in him the fulfillment of Psalm 8. He is the one who was made a little lower than the angels, but now is crowned with glory and honor, and God is lifting us up in Christ to share in that glorious position of the true man. Paul says if we go backwards in order to where God gave a division, a certain order of Jew and Gentile, and if we look back to that, then we will fall as plunder to the enemy. Now, there are some very specific applications that Paul is going to give us. So I'm not going to go into them now because we'll see that there are three applications in verses 16 through 23 that Paul wants us to think about when we go back and we, we consider how God has moved history forward. And so two things. We can fall prey to the traditions of men, and we can also fall prey to looking backwards over something God has given that's good, but now he has pushed us forward. So the, the, rules, the rules of the house that were, when there, the walls were built and they were established and, and the doors were shut, well, in Christ, those rules are fulfilled now that the house God has given is overflowing. And we'll be, we'll be spending a little bit of time thinking about that. So I want to push on then to the third according to. It says, instead, the way that we walk in Christ is according to Christ. 
So we, we won't fall prey to a false love of wisdom if we walk according to Christ. Remember, Christ means the anointed one. So walk according to the one who has come as the fulfilled priest, the fulfilled king, and the fulfilled prophet. And then he gives three reasons why. Verses 9, 10, and 11. For in him... All the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. This is something, something we've seen in Colossians already back from chapter 1. In Christ, the fullness of God dwells. Now remember, this, this is the goal. God dwelling with man. And so we walk according to Christ. Why? Because Christ has already achieved the goal. God dwells in him. The fullness of deity dwells in, in bodily form. And, and remember then that, that fullness of deity dwelling. We have all the richness of the tabernacle image in which God comes and he dwells in his house. We now see fulfilled in Christ. And the reason that we walk according to him and not according to what was in ages past and not according to our own traditions that bifurcate from this goal, but rather we walk in him because we see what God intended us for is fulfilled in Christ. In him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and not just in him, verse 10, but the second in him, the second reason, is because in him also we are filled. Because we are united with Christ, because we're part of the body with the head who is Christ, we are now filled up. And intentionally there we should be thinking then of that, that temple imagery in which God dwells in our midst. Because Jesus, as the founding stone, builds up, and we're part of the, the walls of the temple. God now dwells in our midst. And there's an individual and a corporate aspect to that, but then we have two reasons. Because God dwells in Christ, so we see the fullness of what God is making us to be in the anointed one in Christ, and already now, God is bringing us into that fullness in Christ. Then he adds this note. Uh, this is outside of his sequence. You, you can see it then in, in the phrasing, in him, in him, in him. But as we're brought into Christ and we share then in this filling up, we're being made complete into what God wants us to be by the communion and fellowship of Yahweh of hosts. He gives us then this, this side note, which is important for his, his argument he's going to make in the next few verses. And also, just note this, he is the head of all rule and authority. So God is dwelling in our midst now in a fulfilled form. He dwells in Christ in a bodily form, and in him we share in that fullness. And the one who dwells in us, he's the head of all rule and authority. That word rule is the word arche. It can mean beginning. He's the head of all beginnings. He's the head of all, all rulers. And if you recall, those are the words we read back in Colossians chapter 1. In him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible. Thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities, all things have been created by him and for him. Those rulers and authorities are creations of God, and he who dwells in us is head over him, over them. That necessarily means already by the time we get to verse 10, we ought to have no fear of those rulers and authorities. Because the one who is their chief dwells in us. And this is one of, the, one of the problems, one of the attacks upon the Colossian church is you need to fear 
the rulers and authorities because they can kick you out. They can remove you from the presence of God. They can remove you from the synagogue. We see that in the Gospel of John. The threat of the Pharisees is, we're going to take you out of the presence of God. And Paul says, no, you are filled with the fullness of God, and he who is the head over those earthly and spiritual rulers and authority now dwells in you. And then thirdly, and importantly, in him you have already been circumcised. So this is again about God dwelling in you. One of the requirements, the requirement of the people of God was circumcision, but Paul now says God is dwelling in Christ in bodily form. He's dwelling in you. In Him we share in that fullness. And thirdly, and he's going to expand on this point, in Him you were circumcised. You have already been circumcised. And so speaking then to a mixed church of Jews and Gentiles, he says all of you are circumcised. And you don't need physical circumcision because you have already been circumcised. In him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands and the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So we don't have time to unpack all of verse 11. Instead, what we'll see is that he's going to again give us three subpoints of what it means to be circumcised in Christ. But just as a teaser, as we look forward to next week, he says that we have been circumcised in him with a circumcision made without hands. That, that made without hands, uh, it's a phrase that's only used in one way in the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's about God's house. It's made without hands. It's built without hands. In, in Daniel chapter 2, the stone that crushes the statue, Nebuchadnezzar's golden, silver, bronze statue, it's made without hands. And it grows up into a mountain. So Jesus and his people come, and what was, we'll look at that next week, is no more because Christ is the fulfillment of the rooting, of the building, of the establishing, and of the overflowing. So that our only response is to look to him. And this, of course, is Paul's overall point. Everything we do is rooted in Christ because he is the fulfillment He's the fulfillment of everything that God has intended for us. And so we base our lives in him. We check our traditions based on him and based on that goal. And that's what will safeguard us from being taken plunder by our enemies. If you would stand and let's pray. Father, we thank you that in Jesus we are made new. In Jesus you dwell in our midst so that even today, even today we are truly brought into your presence and our Savior Jesus walks in his robes of authority and he walks among us. We have a lampstand because of Jesus and so, Lord, help us to cling to him, help us to be rooted in him, to take our life from him. And, Lord, we want to be safeguarded from every evil attack and every way that Satan renews his deception. We pray that you would protect us from it. 
helping us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. We give you thanks for all things as you give us and build us in grace and glory. We pray these things in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen.